There's a lot of other conspiracy theories, which I won't go down those. It's the class of 1980. 40, 40, 40 years. 1980 sounds so long ago. 40 years sounds horrible, but I guess we're uh, we're not looking too worse for wear after all that time, at least the pictures I've seen of most of you. Glad to see many of you enjoyed hearing the interview last time. Uh, this time, we're going to definitely burn some of the dust off the unused synapses in, the, in your brain matter. Talk about nuclear energy, different types of nuclear reactors, alternative fuels, um, all kinds of exciting stuff. And uh, if you're listening to this, I assume that you found the uh, Greencastle Antrim 40th year alumni page. But um, make sure you click uh, follow on that so that you receive any updates that come through. And uh, take the opportunity to connect with classmates that you haven't, uh, haven't talked to for quite a long time. So, I'm Dean Martin, and this is Interviews with the Class of 1980. Well, I have the privilege of talking to Ed File today. I noticed uh, he had posted a few things on Facebook, so I reached out to see if he would agree to be interviewed, and sure enough, he did. Ed, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Dean. How are you? I'm doing well. I know a little bit about what you are doing. As I uh, saw in your Facebook feed a podcast that you uh, were interviewed, uh, Titans of Nuclear. So I know uh, I listened to that and was fascinated by the the uh, project that you're involved in. But maybe give us a thousand-foot view of uh, where you've been, uh, what you've been doing, and uh, what you're up to now. When I left high school... I went to Penn State University and I studied nuclear engineering uh, with a fusion option, uh, graduated with a bachelor's there, went to the Naval Nuclear Lab up in here in Schenectady, New York, and operated a nuclear plant for the Navy tra training Navy students. And then I went into the plant design for the Navy and I've done plant design for 32 years with the Navy, and I've designed just about every kind of reactor you can imagine, including space reactors. So when you say space reactor, is this uh, to be put on a satellite or a spacecraft of some type or deployed on a planet or, or what? It was actually uh, the Jupiter Icy Moons Orbiter okay. Prometheus program. So it was basically a reactor that generated electricity and used an ion drive to go to Jupiter's moons. Uh, so it was supposed to take about 12 years to get there and then do science around three of the moons of Jupiter. But NASA canceled that. Oh, really? Yeah. Budget budget kind of issues. Budget and politics. Um, <laughs> NASA hired the Navy to design the reactor because we had experience designing real reactors and nobody in the United States did. Because uh, everybody's been retired that's actually designed and built real reactors. So they hired us. But that means the people that thought they were doing nuclear design in the Department of Energy were, shall we say, upset that they didn't get picked to do the design. So you started in uh, New York. Um, have you lived around the country at different naval bases or stayed basically in the same area? No, I was just designing the reactor. So. Okay. I stayed here in Schenectady where the uh, design lab is, and I would go to the shipyards to help them start up ships, do startup testing, that sort of thing. I, when I, before I left, I was going out for 
new reactor startups twice a year and then refueling startups once a year. I have to admit that I did not know that there were so many different ways to design a, a reactor until I watched uh, some of your videos in preparation for this. Um, I don't know if you can dumb down a little bit, but uh, how many different ways to, to design a reactor are there? Uh, there are many different fluids they can use to cool a reactor. Everybody's familiar with the water reactors. There are two types of water reactors in the United States. You can cool a reactor with sodium, with liquid lead. You can cool it with heat pipes, and you can cool it with gas, all of which we've tried ex at some point, except for the heat pipe reactor. Those are fairly new. The other thing you can do is instead of using solid fuel, you can use liquid fuel. And I'm chief technology officer at Elysium Industries today and stuff. We're designing a fast liquid-fueled sodium chloride-fueled reactor. And from what I read, it looks like you are a founding partner in this venture. So how did uh, you and the other partners get together and decide to start, uh, start this? So I was kind of bored designing <laughs> water reactors over and over and over and over and over again. Gotcha. Um, so I was looking for a way to help the commercial industry to do it. There's, there's only one place in the United States back in 2010 to 2015 timeframe where anyone had a conference on molten salt reactors. And that was the Thorium Energy Alliance conference in Chicago. And so I met these uh, entrepreneurs. They were actually Babson College entrepreneurial students at the time. And then they graduated and we started the company. Um, actually, we started the company just before they graduated, come to think of it. And, and we've been working on the reactor design since then. And they've been, of course, looking for funding. Which uh, begs the question, just how much money does it take and how many years before you can go from the design phase to actually building the first reactor? So for building the reactor, so far we've had about uh, seven, a little over $7 million of funding. We've gotten through the preconceptual design or working on the conceptual design. We think it'll take about two to $300 million to build a demonstration plant, to finish the conceptual design and, and do the build the demonstration plant. And the demonstration plant's only the reactor. It doesn't have a power system on it or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And that's a first of a kind. And we plan on doing that by the end of this decade, so before 2030, somewhere in the 2026, 2027 timeframe, right? After that, there, there's kind of like two parts of the reactor. We think that it's going to cost under half a billion dollars, about $500 million to build the reactor plant part of it. And the reason I break it down is because we're used to building electric power plants out of nuclear today and running full power. But our reactor is operating basically at the temperature of lava instead of very low temperature of like a, a pressure vessel in, with uh, high pressure uh, water. So we can get a lot more efficiency, but it, what it also means is we can do a lot of different chemical uh, reactions, such as making hydrogen, making synthetic fuel, uh, making concrete and steel, 
uh, instead of just making electricity. So there's a, it has a lot more flexibility. So it kind of depends on what the other part of the power plant is that you want to do as to how much it costs. But that part of the plant for an electric plant is 85% of the cost, not the nuclear plant. Gotcha. And one of the things about the, the high temperature reactors is that part of the plant is not part of the safety systems if you're at a high temperature. It is for water plants like, like uh, TMI and Fukushima. Well, I had hoped that we would not uh, geek out quite that much so early in the interview. <laughs> That's a little bit hard if you're talking to me. <laughs> to not geek out. I assume that you'll be richer than um, than than Bill Gates after after this takes off. Only if we get to build them. <laughs> Let's get away from geek stuff. Tell me about your family. How many how many kids you have? Do you have any grandkids? I have two kids. That's all we're planning on. Um, no grandchildren. Don't expect any grandchildren. Uh, my son Benjamin Ben uh, went to. Uh, uh, Rochester uh, Institute of Technology in Rochester, New York. And then he went to Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh uh, for a master's degree. And he currently works at iRobot uh, designing the uh, Roomba or specifically the programming it for control functions and other things that he can't tell us about. And uh, my daughter went to, um, she went to Transylvania University for two years in Kentucky and then uh, finished her degree in animal science in uh, Cobleskill, New York, just down the road. So she has a bachelor's degree, and she's currently working at Tractor Supply. Uh, my brother, next youngest to me, Vaughn, went to Carnegie Mellon, actually, and uh, some robotics work out there, and uh, got a job at a manufacturing plant as an engineer, and took them into the 21st century, built a using computer controls and pneumatics to build a, a better mousetrap, so to speak. He's really rich now. Not that I'm bitter, but uh, just a little jealous. I, my, uh, my senior project at uh, Penn State was to program a, shall we say, second-generation computer chip to read reactor power digitally, and it's the first time that it had ever been done. Okay. The first time we pulsed the reactor, this is a 20-microsecond power pulse, the first time we pulsed the reactor, the reader failed. And we thought we were going to fail the class and stuff. But they gave us 15 minutes, and they were going to repulse the reactor. And we corrected the software, and it worked. Nicely and done. Penn State still uses that to this day for uh, student training. Cool. Uh, we were going to record this yesterday, and you uh, texted me quickly and said, I have a problem with one of my horses. So how did you get into raising horses? And uh, uh, tell us a little bit about that, husbandry. Uh, we, we don't raise the horses at our house. That We board them at a farm about a half hour away. Okay. Uh, my daughter was the one that got interested in horses, and she got into eventing, which is you do dressage, you do jumping over fences in a, an arena, and then you do cross-country running and jumping. And she did that for quite a number of years, um, but gave that up eventually. Um, it takes a toll on your body. And, uh, but we still have the horses, but I was basically every other weekend we were going to horse shows and all the time in between we were spending at the barn, which I'd have to take her to the barn generally because my wife took mornings 
morning shift and then worked late. And I um, went in very early and then picked up the kids at night. So I had took them, took her to the barn. And um, since I was spending so much time there, we decided that uh, I would get a horse too and I would learn to ride. That way, when she goes riding out at the barn, she has somebody to go out with, which it's always safer if you have two people. You never know when this horse is going to get scared. She's had three horses. This is her third one now. She actually picked it up from uh, a, a famous rider in, in uh, Philadelphia area. And what breeds are they? Hers is Sal Francais. And mine is Hanoverian. You still enjoy riding, or I still enjoy riding. Um, right now, her horse is is not really doing very well, so I can't really go out riding with her. So, pretty much when we go out, either she rides my horse or I ride my horse. Um, but since she's working at Tractor Supply and I'm working from home, I can go any time of day during the week. And so she gets to ride him on the weekends or my wife rides too, to some extent, but she just uses my horse. We're in the middle of the Corona COVID-19 epidemic. So I guess we should talk a little bit about that. I've been somewhat frustrated with shutting the entire country down, uh, <laughs> but I guess it, uh, it has to be, <laughs> or they think it has to be, I guess my contention is, you know, they, we see the exponential growth of cases, but that's also could be caused by exponential growth of the test kits available. Um, I wonder how much of this has been floating around for a couple of months and, you know, how many, how many people have already gotten it? How many deaths have already happened and just been attributed to the other flu or just pneumonia? I mean, I don't know. I I think that there are a lot of people that have gotten it that we don't know about. I think it is still on the way up, though, because the death rate is what tells you that you're still on the way up until the death rate turns down, which lags about two to three weeks okay. after the infection rates. But that doesn't mean that there weren't a lot of young people that got infected early on that are immune at this point. Correct. I personally think that we ought to have... Uh, you know, divide the, the population into three or four groups and stuff. One group that they can prove that have already had it, either they've been in the hospital and had it and recovered, or you, you can test for antibodies and they get a green card. They can work anywhere, anytime, are not limited on population density at the workplace. And then you've got a blue card, you know, for people that are, shall we say, under 60 or under 50, and they can go out and work and get it because they're not likely to die, but they still might need medical care. And then you've got a red group that either is old or has underlying conditions or are taking care of people in that condition. They would have a red card that, that we need to try to figure out how to protect. And then a fourth card is maybe the gold card, which are uh, like medical and first responders. For that and then and then let everybody go back to work that's that's either already had it or so green card or blue card can go back to work yeah i don't know how far away do you think we are from having a test for antibodies they're already out there the the question is more to build up the uh, test kits to be able to start testing and the money involved with that because we don't actually have test kits for testing for people having the virus yet, right. let alone people that had the virus. So most of the money is going to go to people 
for the test that to test whether people currently have it because those people need to be isolated from everyone else. So that's more important. But we're getting to the point where the antibodies are going to be able to start helping people because we have over 100,000 people that have already recovered and come out of the hospital, let alone people that are that never went to the hospital in the first place. Yeah, I guess, you know, my frustration is the first two-week shutdown was supposedly to flatten this curve somewhat, uh, assuming that everyone was going to get it and right. um, the... Um, they just wanted to level it out to make it easier on the healthcare system. And now I assume they're shutting everything down, hoping that um, they're going to stop spread of the virus completely. And, um, you know, we all don't have to get it. I don't, I don't know what they're doing. Yeah, I don't buy that. I think everybody's <laughs> going to get it. You think I think we have to get at least to get to 40% of the people in the country having had it to start getting herd immunity. But spreading it out takes us into the summer. And so it may stop spreading or slow spreading for a while yeah. in the summer and then come back next fall when we're, shall we say, more prepared. Um, so that's a possibility. But I think most people will end up having it. I don't know if you remember. Um, we're old enough to know that back when we were young, you went to your friend's house when they got chicken pox and you got chicken pox to get the immunity for chicken pox. Well, they didn't have a vaccine. This is identical to that. Yeah. And the young people aren't affected just like with chicken pox or not very affected. And I think that's what we really need to end up doing. That's why I'm saying this, this system is, you know, isolate the people that are vulnerable. Cause back then, if your kids got the chicken pox, grandma never came over. <laughs> yeah. And now, uh, now I'm grandpa and married to grandma. So, uh, at least we have the technology, uh, we can video chat and all kinds of interesting things. And then, being cooped up at home, um, we have Netflix and all kinds of exciting stuff that we can entertain ourselves with. So, how well have you kept in touch with your class of 1980? I must, uh, to my chagrin, I have done a poor job even close by. Uh, you're far away, so I would assume that uh, that you don't get around here much for reunions and such. So, who have you stayed in touch with, if anyone? Um, no one really, uh, not even my close friends. Generally, <laughs> I keep trying to get in touch with Colin, but he's a doctor in Waynesboro, so he's hard to catch up with. Right, and he doesn't have a lot of, uh, shall we say, social media time to to catch him on there. But Penny's the really the one that I've been touching base, but she's essentially the one that's trying to pull everybody together for the reunions. Correct. I did go to one reunion. I. Uh, maybe 10 years or something like that. I didn't recognize anyone. So I just stopped going because, you know, it was kind of embarrassing and they recognize you and you, well, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> I I'm terrible at names. I'm great at numbers. I can, I can give you all the dimensions of the Virginia class reactor submarine. Uh, well, if you had a clearance, <laughs> but I can't remember people's name to the next day. <laughs> So interesting places that you've uh, had the privilege to visit or um, vacation? So interesting places. I'm a geek. I got to go to Argonne National Lab and see all their reactors that they have out there and the hot cells. And where's that? That sort of thing. As far as what Argonne, it's in Idaho, you know, where they had the earthquake oh, two days okay. ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So, but as far as travel, my wife likes to travel. We've, we toured Europe. 
on our honeymoon. Um, we've been back to uh, the UK uh, and uh, Ireland um, a few times. We've been to um, Iceland for a tour around Iceland, which that's the one I like most of the places we've gone. Uh, she likes to go to Italy, like Rome, Florence, um, that sort of thing. Um, but uh, now would be a bad time to visit Italy. Well, unless you're one of the people that want to get it and get it over with. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but my understanding is airplane flights are exorbitant right now to other countries. Like flying to China is like seven to $8,000. I don't want to go there either. So, But we typically, like in the winter, like to go to, down to the Caribbean. And we, we do snorkeling. We basically swim around the island all day. My daughter... My daughter, Lydia, the one that, that rode the horses and stuff, we, I taught her to swim at, at nine months old. So she could swim before she could walk. Oh, my goodness. And she learned to swim underwater. Um, so when we go out swimming and stuff, snorkeling and stuff, we go out swimming for miles. Picturing you as a geek, snorkeling does not go together. <laughs> <laughs> you can't snorkel in a suit and tie. I try not to wear a suit and tie. The only times I wore a suit and tie at work was when I was trying to impress someone like NASA when we worked, we worked for them because the suit and tie is basically a power thing. And I wanted to be respected for what was in my head, not, not what I looked like. But when you're meeting somebody new, they don't know what's in your head. And so you got to impress them with your looks. And so I do that when I meet somebody new, like, you know, congressmen and stuff like that. But right, every um, you know the videos that have the videos I've seen of you online, you always have a suit and tie on. So, like when you're speaking to Congress yeah. or whatever. Uh, th those are usually con conferences and that sort of thing. Gotcha. Actually, if you get the the first one that I really did, I actually wore a tux. <laughs> I didn't so see my, that. My son's uh, my son was getting engaged and going to have an engagement party. And they were insisting that we wear tux and, you know, fancy dress for my wife and stuff. So I took that, but I had a conference that actually was before the engagement party. But I don't even know if you remember, there was what they called Snowmageddon in Boston. Okay. That yes. year. Yep. And they basically canceled the engagement party, but I was already there for the conference. And yes, Snowmageddon was there for the conference. So I said, well, I've got this tux along. Why don't I just wear it for uh, doing my talk, which I did. And everybody loved it. And to this day, they still remember that. I don't know how much of a foodie you are, but what are, uh, what are some of your favorite meals or foods or restaurants? I, I don't like high-end food. I like low-end food, comfort food, like Pennsylvania Dutch type style, uh, pasta, potatoes, meat type stuff. So I like the places like diners and like the ice cream stand along the road. Stuff like a hot roast beef sandwich, noodles and broth, uh, cheese noodles, pizza, that sort of thing. <laughs> I'm not an expensive date. <laughs> you take me to a high-end place and I won't eat. <laughs> when you're on vacation, you have to go to high-end places, don't you? That's right, because the rest of my family is there and they like that kind of food. <laughs> But then I have to stop in, to in between to get some real food. I almost starved when we went through uh, through Europe on my uh, on our honeymoon. Basically, cheese and crackers the whole way. Because back then, the UK had horrible food. They had horrible meats. Yeah, I agree. We visited London maybe 20 years ago, and 
the food was not very good. So uh, that was we did. We, I enjoyed r- riding the tube though and seeing the sights, but the food was not yeah, there. It's better now. Uh, any interesting memories from high school that uh, you want to share? I enjoyed the fact that I was able to read science fiction book the whole way through the entire physics class in senior year. You did. You didn't like physics. I love physics. That's why I became a nuclear engineer, right? So I picked something that was the hardest that I could imagine to do because I needed to be able to figure out something that was going to keep me, uh, shall we say, entertained for 40 years. Didn't work. Got bored after less than 40, 30 years, but that's why I got out and started working on something more exciting. Uh, are you? Do you think you'll make it down for the reunion this year, or is that pretty much not going to happen? I'm thinking about making it. I don't think Teresa's planning on coming. We'll have to figure out whether COVID actually allows us to have it still. I don't know if it's oh going to be over goodness. by then. If it's not over to October, I'll be a basket case. And I don't want to keep you too long. I appreciate you taking time to talk to me today. If everyone wants to learn more geek stuff, just do a search for Ed on uh, on the internet. It'll bring up a speeches at conferences and all kinds of nuclear technology discussion. So uh, wish you well and success in your endeavor, Ed. And uh, again, I appreciate you uh, talking to me today. Thank you very much. Sure thing. We'll see you. See ya. Thanks for tuning in once again to this uh, grand little experiment. It is mostly painless having to talk to me, so reach out to me on Facebook, and we'll schedule an interview. We have a few coming up this weekend uh, that we will uh, get out next week for you to to listen to. With that, we will say that uh, for those of you on the front lines, medical professionals that are dealing with uh, testing and so forth, stay safe. Our thoughts and prayers are with you. If you're stuck inside, make sure to contact me so that we can do an interview. We'll see you next time.